What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? From the fifth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. From the onset of the gospel parable from the Gospel of Matthew, which we read today, it is apparent that this reading and the one from Isaiah 5 are to be read together. So say the drafters of our lectionary. We do not have to speculate as to why this is. It is abundantly clear that Jesus is drawing upon this imagery of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 to draw the attention of his hearers to consider their history as a nation and their current lives in view of that history. I know this is a very terribly unpopular and, uh, and rather, uh, uh, well, kind of coarse thing to do these days is to actually consider the history of your nation and then consider yourself in the light of that history. We are much more concerned to live in the present than in the past. But Jesus' hearers would have immediately remembered these words of Isaiah. They were words written to uh, a people about to go into exile. Isaiah has composed a love song on behalf of the Lord to a vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. It is not only a love song written on behalf of the Lord, but it is a love song that is deeply personal for Isaiah. It is his song of love for his city. He is writing of his love for the vineyard which God has built. You might even say that he is writing as a patriot, That vineyard is quite clear. It is Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah in the time before its destruction and the exile of the people to Babylon. I uh, remember one of the things I learned in in, uh, studying the Old Testament is the prophets are not shadowy in what they say. They say what they mean. Isaiah loves this city. And if you've ever been there before, it's easy to see why. In fact, if I'm ever asked the question, you know, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? I say Jerusalem every time. I would just move to Jerusalem and that would be it. And I'd just spend the rest of my life there because it's just a wonder to me. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And in those days, it was at the crossroads of civilization. It was easily defended. Valleys on every side. You could see your enemy coming from long distances. And it had been extraordinarily wealthy. The vineyard is an image of all of that and more. That vineyard had been built on a fertile hill, the hill of Zion. It had been cleared of stones, the stones being the foreign nations, especially the Canaanites. It had been planted with choice vines, namely here the people of Israel, God's chosen people. It has a watchtower and a wine vat. And here you can think of all that is in the city. The temple, the commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, the lower city of David. All of these things pointing to the Lord's continual watch over the vineyard, His continual presence, and His continual providence. But something has gone wrong in the vineyard. The Lord has looked to Jerusalem and to the people of the nation to give Him cultivated grapes, grapes good for wine and good for eating in their season, And by the way, I know we've grown used to eating uh, year-round produce, but this right now 
is the season for grapes. The first weekend in October in this country, around California, people are picking grapes like crazy. But what has come in? Not grapes good for wine, but wild grapes. And we should ask, why wild grapes? Well, years ago, we lived in the heart of California wine growing. We lived in a county that produces more wine per acre than anywhere in the world. And through the years, I got to know several of these winemakers, the good ones anyway. I would show up in clericals, and they would walk me through their operations on a Tuesday afternoon after I'd gone to a meeting in Sacramento. And on many occasions, they would grab a wine thief. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a long glass tube, and it has a little spot where you can stick your thumb to grab some wine straight out of the barrel. They'd grab that wine thief and two wine glasses, and I'd get excited because I knew it was about to come. We'd go back among the barrels, and we would taste the various wines as they were maturing. And sometimes the winemaker would say, I'll sell you a case of that now for $10 a bottle or something, a wine that would eventually be $25 a bottle. And that was how they kind of kept their cash flow going. It was always rewarding to have made a good choice on that, however. I desired at that point in my life to know what makes good wine very good. Why is it that two neighboring vineyards can yield dramatically different results? Well, first, some of the basics of winemaking. The way you plant a vineyard is with wild rootstock. You do not use the stuff that you would think you use. You don't plant Cabernet root. When you want to grow Cabernet, you grow wild rootstock and you graft in Cabernet vines. Why do you do it? Well, the rootstock has been proven to work in the surrounding climate. It is hardy in those conditions. And you graft in the varietal that you wish wish to achieve. Cabernet, Zinfandel, Toscano, Rioja, any number of things. The rootstocks of these varieties are less hardy, but grafted into wild roots, they do very, very well. The other trick in winemaking is not to baby the vines. They need to barely make it. You want to provide them with just enough water to survive, just enough care. You want to prune the vineyard back regularly so that the, so that the yields are lower. I remember one winemaker having me uh, look next door as I was going through his vineyard uh, as part of the wine club. You got invited to go work in the vineyard. And he, I, I said, why are, why are we doing this? <laughs> why are we pulling these vines off and throwing them on the ground? And he, he pointed me to look at a neighboring vineyard. He said, you see those vines over there? Those belong to Gallo. They're going to yield 13, 14, 15 tons an acre. I'm going to yield five tons an acre, hopefully four. His wine was, of course, vastly superior to Gallo's swill that they sell in gallon jugs on the lower shelf of HEB. Does anybody still buy that? Anyone? Okay. The point was this. Keeping a vineyard takes intense work. It looks like nothing is really happening. When you looked at this particular winemaker's vines, you thought, is anything going to come of this? You look at Gallo's vines, and they're just green and shoots everywhere, and it's just lots and lots and lots of vines. But he knew that growing a vineyard takes work, and it's often miserable work, and it's painful work, which is why wineries either employ day laborers or they uh, con yuppies into going out to the vineyard paid with wine and food. 
and maybe a little jazz music if you're lucky. If you pay close attention and you preserve the vines from cold, from a lack of good drainage, and you hit the right yields, you can make wonderful, wonderful wine. And that is why, in a nutshell, a bottle of Napa Cabernet costs $60 a bottle, maybe even 100 and a gallon of Gallo costs 10 It's about the end to which you are looking, that of glorious good wine. This is what separates cultivated grapes from wild ones, and it's what separates good wine from bad. But what do you do when the vineyard goes bad? And how does it go bad? It goes bad from lack of care. If you let that vineyard simply do what it is and you don't do the hard work of grafting in just the right vines, then it will simply yield wild grapes. And what do you do with that? Well, it's simple. You tear it down. You take a bulldozer and you plow it up because bad rootstock can't give you good wine. It might be passable to people who can't tell the difference between good and bad, but it will never be great. That takes time, it takes age, and it takes work. So what is all of this about at the end of the day? What are these people, both Isaiah's initial readers and Jesus' hearers, hearing about? It's about a nation under judgment. It's about a people who have neglected the work of God which has been given to them. It's about a lack of good fruit and a lack of any discernible effort in getting there. The people of Judah have consistently neglected the worship of the one true God and have turned to foreign idols, to wild grapes. And they've said, after all, the wild grapes are just as good as the cultivated ones, are they not? You know, let me just just say this. I'm not a wine snob, so please hear me when I say this, but there is a vast difference between $5 bottles of wine and $30 bottles of wine, and if you can't tell the difference, you're lucky, but you're still wrong. They have neglected this good worship, these good fruits which they are to bear, saying, oh, it's all the same after all, isn't it? They've called upon other gods to defend them, care for them, give them good harvests, saying things like, well, we certainly need to keep our our bets hedged in this way. Not being reminded that they are hedged about with the protection of the God in whom their fathers called upon. Worst of all, they have neglected weightier matters, justice, righteousness, in favor of blood and outcry. The nation, in turning aside from their solemn and holy vocation as a people, has neglected the poor and the widow and the stranger. God has come looking for justice, and what does he find? He finds bloodshed. He finds an outcry. The people have become violent, and they have become a people of bitter lament. This is what happens when a nation turns aside from God's righteousness. You get violence, and you get lament. You do not get good fruit. And so Jesus adds to this image. And what he adds in is this idea that the master of the house goes away to a foreign country and sends servants to get his fruit. Those servants meet a violent fate. One is beaten, another killed, and another stoned. So there is your violence. 
It's clear enough that Jesus is here speaking of the various prophets straight up to and including John the Baptist. He says not only does, Jesus send, does, the, does the master send those first servants into the vineyard, he sends others as well, and they do the same thing to them. And then the master decides to send his son to them. What he is looking for is rather basic and fairly simple. Respect. He says, they will respect my son. He's not even looking for fruit anymore. He's given up on getting good fruit. Why? Because it's too late. If he sent uh, the servants off to get fruit at the end of September, and then he sends more in to get it in early October, and then he sends more in to get it in October, it's too late. You've got raisins. What is he looking for? Just respect. The bare minimum. But what does he get instead? He gets exactly what Isaiah said the owner of the vineyard gets. He gets a kind of bitter lament, and then he gets violence. We think it begins with violence. We think it begins with the killing of the son. But it actually begins with this most basic idea spoken by the workers in the vineyard. The produce of the vineyard belongs to us. It is our inheritance. We get it. It's ours. It is a lament of not having enough, of not having what you think you're entitled to. And so they kill the son. It should be quite obvious here that Jesus is speaking of himself. But the parable ends, not with the death of the son, but a question put to the people, to the hearers on that day. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus is using the innate sense of justice built into the hearers to produce a response. By the way, Christian theology agrees with the understanding of the ancients that this basic virtue of justice is a natural virtue. We are born with it. Parables like this stoke the fires of this natural virtue in us, causing us to look for justice. But let me pause for a moment just to define what justice is, because I think it's sorely misunderstood today. Christian teaching on justice does not conflate it with equality or equal opportunity. Justice is simply this, constant and firm will to give God and our neighbor their due. And what are they due? They're due love. Not as we think we owe it to them, and not as they think they owe it to us, or they think we owe it to them. But to give that love to both God and our neighbor, the love to which they are entitled by nature. This is why we begin every Eucharist with the summary of the law. This repetition of this most basic command. It establishes us as a people in the way of love and love of God and love of neighbor, two fruits which are sorely lacking in the current climate of wildness. This sense of justice brings about in the hearers a desire for a righteous response by the owner of the vineyard. It's simple, they say. He will kill the tenants with a miserable death and will give the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Let me just say this. They do get 
what's on what's what's at stake here. They understand that justice must be meted out, but all they're really doing at this point is virtue signaling. They're saying this is what should happen as we think it should happen. What they don't understand is that for every finger they're pointing, there are 10 pointing right back at them. They have failed to interpret where they are now in light of the history of their nation, their history as God's people. And we quite terribly often forget just how much we have forgotten. Now, of course, we can understand this people producing the fruits of the kingdom to be the church. St. Ambrose says that this song of the vineyard in Isaiah points to the church, encircled and closed with a rampart of heavenly precepts and with the angels standing guard, a tower, so to speak, he says, of apostles, prophets, and teachers ready to defend the peace of the church. The peace of the church is important. The peace of the church is what sets us apart. We should understand that the church is not just a society of like-minded individuals, but a divine humanity in which God is working the purposes of his kingdom. The church is called upon to bear abundant fruit. And when we uh, take the time in the midst of the liturgy to pass the peace, we're doing so as a sign of this kingdom peace. We do so as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But let me ask, where does this peace, where does this good fruit born in peace in the Lord's vineyard begin? Well, as I said earlier, growing good grapes takes work. And this bearing of good fruit begins in work. That might seem counterintuitive for you to hear if all you grew up hearing was, God pays no attention to your works. I'm not talking about that kind of work. I'm talking about the work of the liturgy. It is a work which belongs uniquely to the church, a liturgical work of doing precisely what we are here to do today, to hear the word of God preached and to receive the sacrament which he commanded us to keep. Liturgy refers to this work a work done for God and also for our neighbor, and not for us, not for ourselves. Um, I've never heard this at Christ Church, but in other parishes I've heard people say things like, isn't the liturgy supposed to be done for us? Isn't it supposed to help us? Isn't it supposed to improve us? Isn't it supposed to guide and aid and feed us? And it might, but only insofar as it serves the living God insofar as it is done on behalf of the world. Furthermore, and I might just ask, what is it that you think happens here? We think good thoughts? We think happy thoughts and all things are put to right? No, not even close. Some sort of metaphor? It's become a cliche, but Flannery O'Connor says, if it's a metaphor, then to hell with it. No. We go straight to the work done on the cross for our salvation. We go straight to the cross to receive the fruit of the cross, the body and blood of Christ poured out for us. 
to fuel us for the good works of the kingdom. Second, this life of bearing good fruit continues as this liturgical life continues in daily life. Christian liturgy does not end with a kind of statement about its ending. You know, I've been to churches in the past where they say, that concludes our liturgy, we'll see you again next week. And I think, really? That's it? Of course, I grew up with hearing things like, let us go forth in the name of Christ. For most, of the West, for most of the West liturgical life, the liturgy has ended with a simple Latin phrase, ite misa est, which translates to something like, this is the dismissal. It's rather dull, isn't it? But when you understand what it means, it means something much greater. It means that the misa, the mission of the church, continues on in the body as we leave the doors. It is still very much a liturgy the liturgy of our daily prayers and work. I used to visit Orthodox churches, and they were very good about this. Um, They never started the liturgy on time. They always started it well before, and then it would just sort of bleed into the next thing. And at one point I was asking a priest, why is that? Why don't you ever start on time? And he says, the liturgy doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an ending. It's continual. There are just times when it comes into focus. So we should not think that the work of God takes place only on Sundays or in this building. No, it is the ongoing work of bearing the fruit of love of God and love of neighbor. Lastly, I want to say that this fruit-bearing life does not consist in good intentions, simply the intention to bear better fruit, or less, the ever-popular option of virtue signaling, our public laments about injustice not backed by meaningful action, but by outrage and increasingly by violence. Last night I read uh, up on a a survey of uh, free speech on college campuses. And in many colleges, they registered, they asked this question, do you think it's okay to end harmful speech with violence? This is a simple question. Do you think, this is a students, faculty, all kinds of, do you think it's okay to end harmful speech with violence? And 30% in some cases said yes. 30%. I imagine that's vastly grown in recent years. It doesn't consist in those things. It doesn't consist in simply saying what we think is right. It doesn't consist in simply expressing good sentiment through social media. No, it consists in the hard daily work of the interior life by which we invite God into the darkness which still subsists in us. That He may banish it. That He may make the vineyard of our interior lives immensely fruitful. That interior life by which we consecrate our inmost thoughts and attitudes to the living God through a life of prayer and discipline. It's not easy. It's hard. It's work. But I should say this. Christian holiness has the distinction of being savored not just by God, but by our neighbor as well. It is a sign that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom more than we are citizens of an earthly kingdom. And if we are not constantly reminding the world around us that the kingdoms of this world will fall, 
and are in fact superseded by a greater kingdom, then we've not done our jobs. But how do you do it? I might ask. By voting? Maybe. Fine with that. There's a much bigger project at play, brothers and sisters, a much greater project in mind. It is the exercise of heavenly citizenship done both for God and for our neighbor that produces the fine wine after which God seeks. I remember in 2005, uh, it, was a, it was an incredible year, John Paul II and uh, Mother Teresa died within months of each other. And I remember flipping on CNN during that time and just being amazed. Not one negative comment about these people who were, by the world standards, completely and utterly backwards. Not one negative thing to be said. The world savored their holiness, savored their lives but never more than God savored that holiness. That fine wine, that good fruit, is the end of all of our lives to be holy and rich before God and His glory. Abounding in good works and abounding in the righteousness of His kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.